Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Worcester Talking newspaper, recorded at Colin Chance House on Thursday the 7th of December. I'm Jenny Tansin. with me reading the news are... Sue Perry, Hannah Green, Kate Hudman. Nigel Green is our engineer, Carol Hartle is working on the administration and this week's copying team are Bernard and Doreen Potter. Thanks to Worcester News for all our information. The headlines this week are... Driver tried to strangle me. Christmas crackers. What has been done since my daughter died? Mum faces her abuser. Our chicken is safe to eat. And benefits shake up will hurt disabled people. And I will start with the uh, deaths. Brenda Frayne passed away peacefully on November the 17th, aged 86. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on December the 11th at 10.45. Jean von Pocorny died at home on November the 27th, aged 87. The funeral is at St. Philip's and St. James Church in Whittington on December the 8th at 12 noon. David Melvin known as Baldy, sadly passed away on November the 14th. The funeral is at Worcester Crematorium on December the 11th at 11.30. Lillian Andrews, nay Elt, passed away in hospital on November the 23rd, age 95. Funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on the 12th of December at 1pm. Betty Edwina Haynes passed away on November the 27th, aged 89. Funeral services at the Holy Redeemer Church in Pershaw on December the 15th at 9.30. Martin Thomas Fork, who was a Worcester solicitor, passed away at St. Richard's Hospice on November the 10th, and the funeral service is at Redditch Crematorium on December the 15th at 2 p.m. Edward Frederick Hansen, ex-MEB, passed away peacefully on November the 20th, aged 86. Funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on December the 13th at 10.45. Patricia Caspari, previously Phillips, nay Sexton, passed away on November the 16th, aged 87. The funeral service is at St. George's Roman Catholic Church in Worcester on December the 15th at 11am. Gertrude Collins, sadly passed away, aged 97. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on December the 14th at 315 Brian Jolly passed away peacefully at Worcester Royal on November the 16th, aged 87. Funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on December the 14th at 2.30. Colin Vernon Lloyd, retired police inspector, passed away on the 23rd of November, aged 88. The funeral is at St Andrew's Church in Poolbrook, Malvern on December the 19th at 11am. John Colin Orme passed away on November the 16th, aged 68. Funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on December the 13th at 2.30. Eileen Muriel May Sear, spelt S-I-E-R, passed away on November the 16th, aged 90. The funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on December the 8th at 11.30. Muriel Swineburn passed away on November the 14th, aged 94. Funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on December the 12th at 12.15. Anne Tarbuck passed away on October the 26th, aged 85. Funeral service is at Hallow Church on December the 11th at 1pm. Kathleen Wilde, known as Katie, passed away on November the 22nd, aged 81. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on December the 8th at 915 
Terence Brian Hitchings passed away on November the 30th, age 79. Funeral services at Worcester Crematorium Chapel on December the 18th at 9.15. Tracy Hughes passed away peacefully on November the 24th, age 54. Funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on December the 14th at 10 a.m. Doreen Hunter passed away on November the 23rd, age 69. Funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on December the 21st at 2.30. Ian Lindsay McRae passed away peacefully at Worcester Royal on November the 24th, age 75. The cremation is at the Wire Forest Crematorium on December the 12th at 1 p.m. James F. O'Shea passed away on November the 18th, aged 80. Funeral services at St. George Roman Catholic Church on December the 14th, 12 noon. And Eric William Tipping passed away on November the 23rd, aged 91. The funeral services at St. Mark's Church, Cherry Orchard on December the 15th at 2.30. And now I'll read the thought of the day, which is Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7 written more than 700 years before Christ was born. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And I'll pass you on to Sue for the first headline. And this headline is from Friday, December the 1st. A driver tried to strangle me. A driving instructor says a motorist tried to strangle him through his car window in an alleged rude rage attack. Lee Francis sent dash cam footage to the police of his confrontation with another driver at traffic lights on Canterbury Road, Worcester, in which the man appears to grab him around the throat. Mr Francis, 44, said the motorist overtook him <coughs> excuse me, around a bend on a 20 mile an hour road before he got out to confront him at some traffic lights. I'm doing 20 miles an hour and he comes overtaking me on a bend. I'm thinking, what's so good about you that you can overtake me like that and by breaking the law? <coughs> it was the school holidays and children often play out there. A little further down the road, both motorists were forced to stop at a red light and Mr Francis, who was alone in the car, decided to approach the man. He opened the window and he knew he'd done wrong, said Mr Francis, who has been teaching learner drivers in the city for 13 years. He said, you've got two options, walk away or stay and you've got a problem. Then he jumped out of his window and tried to strangle me. Returning to his car and turning off down Ripon Road, Mr Francis came to a stop to call the police. He said the motorist then looped round and drove down Ripon Road, the opposite way, towards him, before getting out of his car to confront him, shaking the locked driver's side door handle. The incident took place in August, and despite reporting it to the police immediately, nothing was looked into for two months, Mr Francis said. Then two weeks ago, he said he was told by police 
that having interviewed a suspect and reviewed a witness statement and dash cam footage from another vehicle, no further action would be taken. I read that as no matter what I show them, they're not interested, he said. When somebody thinks it's okay to put their hands around your throat, I just think, what if that was one of my pupils having just passed their test? It's not right, he said. West Mercia Police Superintendent Kevin Purcell said, I am aware of the incident involving Mr Francis and I understand his frustration. It's clear that his complaint must be investigated thoroughly and I am ensuring that happens. As both this process and the investigation into the incident are ongoing, it would be inappropriate to comment further at this time. And on Saturday, December the 2nd, the headline was Christmas Crackers. Tenants criticise order to remove (coughs) festive fairy lights. We cannot celebrate Christmas how we want to. Those are the words of residents in a Worcester estate who say their landlord is forcing them to take down their decorations. Residents at Rowan Court in Collodine claim that Housing Association 40's Living has introduced ridiculous new safety rules at the supported living block and demanded that the fairy lights are taken down. However, Fortis was adamant that there has been no ban on fairy lights, just new safety regulations on communal areas in the wake of the Grenfell Tower fire disaster in London earlier this year. Rowan Court resident Olive Knight said the new rules mean that tenants cannot use the Christmas tree lights that they have been using for the last nine years and that Fortis ordered them to take them down. Mrs Knight, 77, said, We have no idea what we can and cannot do now. We were told that the lights are too low down, that they can't be on the ceiling. It's just nonsense. Fortis now say they are sending pictures to the fire brigade brigade to check. It is very unclear. I think it's a real shame that we're being told that we cannot celebrate Christmas how we want to. I think 40s have acted out of all control, telling us what we can and cannot do. We're all responsible adults, and this has nothing to do with Grenfell. We are not going to leave lights on all night or anything. We all look after each other here. Sarah North, who is Mrs Knight's daughter, said residents had been left miserable by the new rules. It is Christmas, for goodness sake, said the 51-year-old. They are being told they're not allowed lights in the communal areas. Why can't they have them? They are miserable. Now they've been told to take down foil decorations as well. They can't have anything except a tree. They're spending their own money on them too. If they can have them in their flat, what difference does it make if they're in communal areas as well? It is bloody ridiculous. They are being treated like schoolchildren, not senior adults. It's not fair for them. A 40s living spokesman said the new regulations were simply about safety. We have absolutely no bans in place for LED lights or fairy lights, he said. What we're putting in place are some fire prevention guidelines for trees, lights and decorations in communal areas. He said these new rules include not to hang wreaths on doors that face into communal areas or to decorate communal corridors and landings. 
Sue Healas, Assistant Director of Housing and Care at Fortis Living, added, We know Christmas is a special time and we want to do all we can to make sure our tenants enjoy it in the safest way possible. Safety is always a priority for us and in light of the tragic Grenfell Tower fire earlier this year, we want to be confident that the risk of fire is minimal. These communal areas measures will help us to do just that. Tenants are free to decorate inside their homes as they wish, but we would encourage them to follow the same guidance. And the headline on Monday, December the 4th. What has been done since my daughter died? A dad, <coughs> excuse me, a dad whose daughter died at Worcester Hospital has criticised management after it was revealed that there were 136 serious incidents in which patients could have been harmed, including 24 deaths in less than a year. Doug Shipsey, father of Bethany Shipsey, submitted a Freedom of Information request to discover how many serious incidents took place at Worcestershire Royal Hospital. There were 136 incidents between December the 1st last year and September the 30th, 2017, a window which also covered the period when his daughter was a patient at the hospital. A serious incident is one which can cause harm to a patient, for example, a fall, contracting an infection such as MRSA or an error in, administration, in administering medication. It was confirmed that of these 136 incidents, 91 caused serious and moderate harm, 24 resulted in death and the remaining 21 were minor or resulted in no harm. However, Worcestershire Acute Hospitals NHS Trust Chief Medical Officer said that while some of these incidents may relate to the care of patients who subsequently died, this does not necessarily mean that their death was caused by the issue that was reported. The Trust has been in special measures since 2015 and is rated inadequate by the Health and Social Care Regulator, the Care Quality Commission. Inspectors visited the Trust again in November, but a report on their findings is not expected until the spring. Mr Shipsey of Warnden Villages, Worcester, also requested information about the average numbers of serious incidents at a hospital the size of Worcestershire Royal Hospital, but was told we currently do not benchmark against other Trusts with a similar profile. However, over 13,000 serious incidents were reported and investigated in NHS acute trusts in 2014, according to CQC figures. As previously reported, Mr Shipsey said there were difficulties in getting his daughter, Bethany, to the resuscitation room before there was, because there were so many trolleys in the way after he was taken to hospital by ambulance in February 15 this year, 15th this year. Bethany died at the hospital after overdosing on diet pill 2.4 dinitrofenol, known as DNP, which she bought over the internet from the Ukraine. Her family said she was moved three times in the 20 minutes before she suffered a cardiac arrest. Mr Shipsey, 52, said the Worcester Hospital already has an unacceptable high mortality rate. The CQC's reports and warnings have cited that patient safety is at risk, particularly in the A&E department. Another winter is almost upon us, so what has been done by the Trust to remedy the situation in time for this winter? 
The new management has already had eight months to make changes, but still there is no difference. So when will this third world treatment of our most vulnerable citizens end? Dr Sunil Kapadia, Chief Medical Officer of Worcestershire Acute Hospital NHS Trust, said, We encourage all staff to report any concerns they may have about issues affecting the quality of care we provide for our patients. We investigate those concerns very thoroughly and share the lessons learned widely across the Trust. Sometimes our investigations reveal issues that are of such concern that we report them as serious incidents. While some of these incidents may relate to the care of patients who subsequently die, this does not necessarily mean that their death is directly related to it or caused by the issue that has been reported. We strive to review all cases where patients die while in our hospital, whether or not there has been any concerns raised about their care or not. This is one of a package of measures we have in place to help us continuously improve the quality and safety of the care we provide for our patients. The Trust has overhauled A&E at Worcester with a £920,000 investment to better improve patient flow. NHS bosses say they were committed to ending routine care on trolleys and in corridors for emergency patients. Beds were opened in the Aikenby unit on the site to ease pressure on A&E and an ambulatory care centre opened on November the 20th, which has certainly helped to take some of the strain. The headline on Tuesday, December the 5th is Mum Faces Her Abuser. A brave mum faced the abuser who terrorised her and threatened to kill her in her own home as he held a knife to her throat. Simon McEvoy was jailed for the attack on Mum of Four, Caroline Tranter, at home at her family home in Grasmere Drive, Warnden, Worcester. The 34-year-old courageously read out her victim personal statement from the witness box at Worcester Crown Court on Monday and stayed to watch McEvoy sent, sent to jail. During the junk, drunken onslaught, he threatened her with knives, pulled out clumps of her hair, burst into her room and pulled off her knickers and threatened to kill her and burn her house down. McEvoy kept his head lowered in the dock, avoiding eye contact with Miss Tranter and the judge who later jailed him. McEvoy, aged 36, of Hunton Road, Birmingham, had admitted threats to kill, assault occasioning actual bodily harm, a fray and two common assaults following the attack on Saturday, November the 12th last year. To protect herself, she later had her locks changed and a fire-retardant letterbox and alarm installed. Petrified, he would follow through on his threats. Miss Tranter said, He pulled so much of my hair out, I had a bald patch, and it went really thin. He pulled out my extensions, and that was very painful. It was very sore at the time, and they were unusable afterwards. It felt like I had whiplash in my neck and the, the shoulders where he yanked me around by my hair. The extensions cost her £240, and it took an hour and a half to have them done. Miss Tranter also had to pay for a new mattress bedding, sorry, mattress, bedding and sheets after he urinated on the bed, costing her £1,000. She told the court he snapped the lock when he forced open her bedroom door and went through her mobile phone and emails. She added... Emotionally, I feel dead inside. I don't trust anybody anymore. When I eventually got to sleep, I would see his face in my dreams. 
he would be right in my personal space, shouting at me. Gareth Walters, prosecuting, said the two had been in a relationship since July 2016, after meeting through a dating website. He said, At first, things went well, but then the defendant became, un- became controlling. Matters came to a head on November the 11th and November the 12th. McEnvoy became angry when Miss Tranter did not answer his calls. He refused to leave her home and later drank a bottle and a half of wine and went out to buy some Bailey's Irish cream. He added, The defendant came back to his car and returned with a Stanley knife and started flicking it towards her face. Later he got two steak knives from the kitchen and said, I'm going to kill you. I'll hunt you down and kill you. I'll burn your house down. He grabbed her hair, pulled it back and told her she had messed with the wrong person. Later, when she had gone to another room to sleep, he burst in and pulled her knickers off. Miss Tranter suffered soreness to her neck and shoulders and later found tufts of her hair in the bin. She also had injuries to her groin. Abigail Nixon, defending, said, To use a cliché, it was six of one and half a dozen of the other. There were consistent declarations of strong love between both parties. The complainant mentioned marriage and shared pictures of engagement rings at one point. Miss Nixon, who handed character references to the judge, described McEvoy's behaviour as out of character and said he had expressed remorse and shame for what she called the night of madness. Though she conceded the offences crossed the custody threshold, she asked the judge to suspend the sentence rather than send McEnvoy to jail. (coughs) Miss Nixon said McEnvoy's wife had died of cystic fibrosis and he had brought up his daughter alone. She also said he was at low risk of reconviction. Judge Nicholas Cartwright imposed a 15-year restraining order preventing McEnvoy having contact with Miss Tranter and other named people. The order also stipulates he must not attend two Worcester schools or enter Grassmore Drive in Warnden, Worcester. Judge Cartwright said McEvoy had said that if he was going to go to prison, he would make sure it was for something good, describing that as a sinister prediction. He said, you put a knife to her throat and threatened to kill her. There were threats to hunt her down and burned down her house, making reference to bonfire night on November the 5th. She was a particularly vulnerable victim, given she was in her own home at the time and you were being so controlling towards her. Judge Cartwright said McEvoy had deliberately targeted her hair and humiliated and degraded her, and it was clear she had suffered severe psychological harm. He said there were five threats to kill in all. However, he took into account... McEnvoy's lack of previous relevant convictions and his guilty pleas sentencing him to 32 months in prison. He can expect to serve half of his sentences in prison and half in the community on license. In total, 196 days will be deducted from his sentence, reflecting time spent on a qualifying curfew of 189 days and on remand seven days. After the hearing, Miss Tranter said she felt she he should have got a longer sentence. She added, I'm so glad he went down. I wanted to see him go to prison. And this headline is from Wednesday, December the 6th. Our chicken is safe to eat. A new oriental buffet says pink meat is caused by the cooking method. A 
new Worcester restaurant has insisted that its chicken was not served raw after customers complained that it was pink. Kung Fu Oriental Buffet, which opened in Cathedral Square in November, has been forced to defend its satay chicken on skewers after complaints from visitors. Sarah Walker, 23, from Morvan, posted a picture on Facebook saying that the chicken was raw, but the Oriental restaurant has said that the pink is caused by the method it is cooked. Since posting on Facebook, Miss Walker's claim has been shared more than a thousand times and consequently will have been seen by thousands of people. Miss Walker, who attended the restaurant with her brother, who is a chef, as well as her fiancé and brother's partner, said her brother bit into what he believed was almost raw chicken. She said, We informed the waitress and she went over to the manager, pointed at us, saying, They're moaning about the food. The manager came over, was not shocked at all, said he'd make us a fresh one. We couldn't stay and eat after seeing that, so we left. He didn't take the food off the buffet, and as we left, people were still taking it off the buffet and putting it on their plates. We left watching children and other customers stack the same food on their plates. I am so, so shocked and terrified. People need to be aware of this. I've made a Facebook post about it that's gone viral. I couldn't believe how many people said that they had had a similar problem. However, a spokesman for the restaurant said the chicken was not raw. He said we would like to express our sincere apology to all the confusions that have been aroused. Our chicken is properly and safely cooked as all the cooking processes are strictly following the standard procedures. The chicken would first be marinated with 10 plus ingredients and then fried in 138 degree centigrade oil for three minutes. After that, the chicken will be deep fried in 160 degree centigrade oil for another two minutes. When the chicken is served onto the plates in the kitchen, the temperature would reach about 90 degrees centigrade. Customers' complaints of the pink chicken are because of the special marinating ingredients used for the dish, the dish being satay chicken on skewers. The chicken is marinated with over 10 different ingredients including peanut butter, satay sauce, turmeric powder, chilli powder, garlic powder, sugar, curry powder, onion, taro, galangal, eggs, oil, self-raising flour, corn flour and cheese powder. I think I'd be more worried about that lot than the (laughs) raw chicken. Those ingredients are the causes of the pink colour. Therefore, although the chicken looks pink, it is properly cooked and safe to eat. And today's headline was Benefits Shake-Up Will Hurt Disabled People. Vulnerable people with learning disabilities and mental health problems are suffering in silence because of a controversial benefits shake-up, says a concerned volunteer. David Matthews says the scrapping of disability living allowance in favour of the personal independence payment scheme is heaping pressure on the city's most vulnerable people in the run-up to Christmas. 
The benefit caseworker at Worcester Citizens Advice Bureau and his colleagues are doing all they can to help after some clients received a score of zero in the PIP assessment. So that was the Personal Independence Payment Scheme, PIP. Despite having a complex range of physical problems, learning disabilities and mental health problems, which he says should make them eligible for the benefit. Under the system, which is being introduced nationwide in phases, a health professional assesses a person's eligibility for PIP against 10 key daily living criteria and against a mobility checklist. Criteria include whether the person is able to prepare food, manage and monitor their health condition, wash themselves, cook, go to the toilet, dress and undress, communicate, read and write and manage money. If the claimant is aged between 16 and 64, they could get between £22 and £141.10 a week by claiming PIP. The points-based assessment is supposed to gauge a person's needs and has nothing to do with their means. To be entitled to the standard PIP rate, they must score 8 points, 12 points for the higher rate. For example, someone would score 10 points if they needed another person to place food in their mouth and 8 points if they needed help with incontinence problems. But in one case, Mr Matthews has been helping a female client with physical and mental health problems and learning disabilities who was given a PIP score of zero, one of a series of such cases he's now dealing with. He says she cannot walk unaided, cook for herself, read or write, or complete practical tasks like using a cash machine. The woman suffers from depression, anxiety, panic attacks, incontinence, arthritis, asthma and carpal tunnel syndrome. Her physical problems are so pronounced she needs either two crutches or a push trolley to move around and also has a severely fractured leg, which requires a caliper. However, after her PIP assessment in November, she lost her previous entitlement to more than £113 a week in benefits, which she previously received as part of her DLA. That was the previous system. Her learning disability has rendered her unable to appreciate the gravity of the situation or the impact the change will have on her quality of life. Mr Matthews is so concerned he has asked the Department for Work and Pensions to reconsider the case, has yet to receive a response. He said, I feel angry the system is not recognising people with learning disabilities. I'm surprised they've got away with it. This has caused real hardship. There are more people suffering in silence. It's disgraceful. It's terrible. She doesn't understand money. She doesn't understand how serious the situation is. Mr Matthews said people with learning disabilities often did not understand the gravity of the changes and struggled to articulate their needs while being assessed. One of the phrases under the PIP mobility activities, planning and following journeys, refers to the effect on activity caused by factors other than psychological distress, a phrase repeated three times in this section alone. 
but Mr. Matthews argues that psychological distress can be a factor in reducing mobility, for example, in the case of someone who cannot go outside unaccompanied because they suffer panic attacks. Ramonia Blackwood, campaign research supervisor at Worcester CAB, said some PIP assessments were completed in half an hour, which does not, which she does not feel is long enough to assess someone's needs. The caseload in Worcester continues to increase as the phased implementation of PIP accelerates. People who feel they can't cope can come to us and we will try to help them, said Mr Matthews. A Department of Work and Pension spokesperson said PIP looks specifically at how someone's life is affected by mental health, unlike the old system, which did not sufficiently recognise mental health problems. In fact, there are now more people with a mental health condition receiving the higher rates of both PIP components that their DLA equivalents and people with mental health conditions can still qualify for the highest rate of mobility under PIP. Decisions for PIP are based on all the information provided by the claimant and their GP or medical specialist and anyone can appeal the decision. Last year, the Department of Work and Pension said a record £11.6 billion was spent on mental health and by 2020 there will be another £1 billion a year on top of that. They say the health professional carrying out PIP assessments have training in multiple and complex conditions, including mental health. In addition, the healthcare provider have mental health champions who are experienced professionals with direct and relevant work experience of helping patients with mental health problems. In total, 66% of people with mental health conditions are on the enhanced rate of daily living, and 30% are on the enhanced rate of mobility. This compares with 22% on the higher rate of care and 10% on the higher rate of mobility under the old DLA. The DWP says PIP ensures that mental health conditions are are given the same recognition as physical ones. Film appeal for food. There's an easy way to find out what to donate to Worcester Food Bank this year. Watch the film they've made about it. The Food Bank has launched the film with the help of a creative city business to drum up support for its Christmas food appeal. The animation highlights highlights the 12 items of food and other essentials the Food Bank urgently needs during the countdown to Christmas and the life-changing impact people's donations have on the charity's struggling clients. GDPR and Media has chosen Food Bank to be its Charity of the Year and has produced the short film which it hopes will help the charity feed a record number of people and families trapped in food poverty this winter. The items include toilet rolls, tea and coffee, washing powder, toothpaste, shampoo, tinned tomatoes, orange juice, jam, can openers, Christmas puddings and toys. 
Graham Lucas, Worcester Food Bank manager, said, We're so grateful to the team at GDPR and Media for donating their time and talents to produce this brilliant little film for us. We hope it will inspire people to help us provide food and a glimmer of hope to the thousands of desperately hungry people who are in danger of going hungry this Christmas. Worcester Food Bank provided more than 7,500 meals to clients last December, but it expects to feed an even greater number this Christmas, with demand for emergency food up by a fifth compared to last year. Gillian Davis, director of GDPR and Media, said, We've been looking for a local charity to support throughout 2018 and were moved to choose Worcester Food Bank after hearing firsthand what an incredible difference it makes to the lives of families and particularly children living in and around Worcester. We are hoping to spend some time volunteering alongside the Food Bank team in the new year, but felt that producing a video to support their Christmas drive would be the perfect way to mark the start of our partnership. Watch the film by visiting worcesternews.co.uk or search for Worcester Food Bank on Facebook. A comical tattoo of Jesus ended up changing the life of a young man who had become a party animal while gigging in a rock and roll band. Ross McQueen was living his life by the motto Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll after joining mates in band Counterfeit when he finished school. As part of his rock style, he decided to cover himself in tattoos, but when he went to get linked with the cartoonish Hollywood-style Jesus, his life changed forever. Ross, now 28, told the Worcester News, I was an 18-year-old lad getting over £1,000 a month. I was like, this is great. I was blowing it. The whole tattoo thing added to that lifestyle that I was looking for. In a band, the whole saying sex, drugs and rock and roll was something I really wanted to subscribe to. At 19, gigging across the Midlands, Ross started to question his party lifestyle when he heard about the death of a friend in a band that his group had supported. We were all living the same way as this guy, and it could have been one of us, said Ross. It really shocked us. Then, in 2009, Ross went to get a tattoo and ended up choosing a cartoonish Hollywood style for his inner forearm as a joke, but felt guilty as he walked out of the shop with his new ink. I remember it so well, he said. I just stopped dead on the corner of the street. The plan was to turn left and just go home and crack on with my life as I always had done, but I just really felt this overwhelming sense of guilt and I regretted having the, car- having the tattoo. Instead, he walked towards a church at the end of the street and found himself going inside. I was really surprised to find that there was a bloke in there, he said. That man was Pastor John Brown, and Ross ended up spending the next few hours in a coffee shop chatting him up. Chatting, sorry, chatting with him, I beg your pardon. They then went back to the church, and Ben asked Ross if he could pray for him and also gave him a verse from the Bible. Ironically, as he had not seen... Ross's tattoo, because his sleeves were rolled down, Ben told him, from now on you will bear the mark of Jesus. From there, Ross began exploring faith and became a Christian, and now nine years on, he's a ministry assistant at Lifehouse Elm Church in Worcester. He's also a graduate of theology from Regent's Theological College 
in West Malvern, currently studying a master's degree and still playing music. A careless driver got a job as a bus driver by lying about his criminal past before stealing thousands from the company. Leoven Domain, also known as Mohammed Daoud, lied to get an £18,000 a year job with Diamond Buses, Rutala PLC in Worcestershire. The 27-year-old of Chatham Court, Northfield, Birmingham, appeared at Worcester Crown Court on Monday. He admitted fraud between July the 7th and September the 11th last year, failing to disclose criminal convictions and theft between August the 4th and September the 11th last year, after stealing £2,226 from Diamond. Laura Cully, prosecuting, said staff noticed anomalies in Domain's takings. Domain, who has a number of aliases, stole the money by only including receipts from the start and end of his journeys to siphon off money for himself. Last September, staff confronted him after he left his bus at the Kingfisher Shopping Centre in Redditch to go to the depot at Plymouth Road. Domain refused to hand over takings and asked, where is this all going? Blaming a training issue for the irregularity. He said he would bring the money by midday but never returned and his job was terminated. Miss Cully said he had a number of previous convictions which surprised them because one of his references was from the Police and Crime Commissioner which was a strange element of the case. Domain received a suspended sentence for fraud in November 2010 after defrauding Selfridges of £19,000. He has appeared in court for making a false representation to obtain car insurance and again earlier this month for possession of cannabis, which resulted in a conditional discharge. A knee injury and tendon damage to his arm made him unsuitable for unpaid work while his intellectual development did not match his chronological years. Amrisha Parathaligam, defending, said the father of two, of the father of two, he's ashamed of his behaviour and sorry for the inconvenience he's caused the court. Judge Nicholas Cartwright said Domain's fraud meant he was able to drive members of the public around for two months. Previous suspended sentences had failed to act as a deterrent. He said, You are someone who has demonstrated that you are capable of driving without due care and attention, and when it seems highly likely you were over the limit or thought you were, committing an offence of failing to provide a specimen for analysis. The potential harm is to people driven around in your bus by someone who should never have been behind the wheel of that bus. The judge sentenced him to 60 weeks in prison. Amid the celebrations of the announcement of the engagement of Prince Harry to Meghan Markle, one aspect of the royal wedding to be has caused concern to a Worcester councillor. Richard Uddall, who represents St John's for the Labour Party Worcester City Council, tweeted, Prince Harry can bring his foreign spouse to the UK, while over a third of British people can't. She's been granted British citizenship, no questions asked. I suppose it depends on who you are planning to marry. 
Chancellor Uddall stressed afterwards that he wished Prince Harry and Miss Markle well, but as the councillor and in his personal life, he has experience of the difficulty UK citizens have in bringing a foreign husband or wife to the UK. He said, I have a friend who was working in the USA and he met and married an American woman. At the end of his contract, he had to return to the UK and leave her there. Now, he's not allowed to live and work in the US because his employment status isn't sufficient. And she's not able to come and live in the UK because even though she could get a job, the government says they wouldn't earn enough to not need benefits. As a counsellor, it's also been brought up with me several times. I wish the couple well, but it seems it all depends on who you're marrying and it's one rule for some people and another for someone else. The rules on bringing in a husband, wife or civil partner to the UK are that a spouse can apply for a visa to stay in the UK, which lasts 33 months, which can be renewed for another 30 months, a total of five years and three months. After five years, they can apply to settle permanently. A British citizen who wants to bring a spouse or partner to the UK will have to be earning more than £18,600 per year to be allowed to have them come here. If they also want to bring a child that is raised to 22400 and another 2400 is adding to the financial requirements for every additional child. If you've been affected by the rules on bringing a foreign husband, wife or partner to the UK, contact Alit Thomas on 01905 742203 or news at Fundraisers committed to raising money for a new church building has launched its latest fundraising initiatives. Holy Trinity and St Matthew's Church previous 50-year Ronxwood building that was known affectionately as the Drum was demolished in 2014 after a partial ceiling collapse. In 2015, planning permission was gained to transform the site with a brand new church designed for the whole community to use, including meeting rooms, a cafe, main hall and parking. But to make the dream become a reality, fundraisers needed to raise a million pounds. In addition, funds are also needing, needed to continue to be raised so that the church can rent space to hold services at Perrywood Primary School. Deputy Church Warden and Chairman of the fundraising group, Penny Welford, said they were continuing the campaign and so far have raised more than £16,000. She added that monthly working parties were regularly tidying the site, which they hope one day to return to. The fundraising this year included the publication of a community cookbook featuring recipes donated by various members of the congregation. Cookbooks are still available, priced at £6. To further boost funds at Christmas Fair is being held at Meadow Court Residential Home in Darwin Avenue on Saturday, December the 9th. The event between 11am and 2pm includes homemade cakes, Christmas gifts, a tombola, books, a lucky dip, games and a tombola again. The fundraisers also ran the popular Aspects of Worcester calendar competition again this year. 
Supporters were challenged to submit the best pictures of scenes from across the city, the best 12 being selected to feature in the calendar. The calendar is A5 size, folding out to A4, and has now gone on sale for £4, with all money raised being donated to the fundraising campaign. The calendar is available from the Tourist Information Office at the Guild Hall, Old St Martin's in the Corn Market, the Cathedral Gift Shop, the Ketch Warehouse in Sheriff Street and at Scales Pharmacy in Ronxwood. They are also available by emailing penny.welford at gmail.com. Anyone interested in buying a copy of the cookbook or supporting the fundraising initiative is also encouraged to email. Our Worcester Legends series profiles so-called ordinary people who make our city such a great place to live due to their passion, dedication and kindness. We're telling their stories every Tuesday in the newspaper and on our website. Coordinator of the St Peter's Walking for Health, the WFH group, and central figure of the Battle of Worcester Society, 68-year-old Christine Shaw, was nominated as a Worcester legend by her husband Richard, who used to read on the talking newspaper for years. The walking group, the biggest of its kind in the city, with 40 members, meets every Friday morning at St Peter's Baptist Church, walking for around an hour each session. Since Christine took over running the group two years ago, she's made it into as much of a social group as a walking group, said Mr Shaw. She helps to organise an anniversary walk to commemorate the state of the group, sorry, to commemorate the start of the group, as well as a Christmas lunch. The founder of the group now lives in Ludlow and Christine organises an annual party at his home and a walk around Ludlow, he added. Mrs Shaw, originally from Herefordshire, married her husband 47 years ago and they have lived just off the Bath Road in Worcester for 28 years. Mr Shaw praised the huge part his wife plays in running the Battle of Worcester Society, the BWS, where she's the secretary, treasurer, membership secretary and merchandise secretary. The fighting in Worcester, which took place on September the 3rd, 1651, was the final battle of the English Civil War, with Oliver Cromwell's 28 strong parliamentarians defeating King Charles II's 16,000 royalists. Mrs Shaw has most recently organised a tour of the commandery for members and arranged for Charles Spencer to speak about his new book, To Catch a King, chronicles the escape and pursuit of Charles II after the battle. With Mr Spencer due to speak yesterday, which was Monday, at Worcester Guild Hall on the High Street. In addition, Mrs Shaw, who was born on Christmas Day, is organising the Society's Christmas lunch at the White House on December the 10th. Both the WFH Group and the BWS are thriving, voluntary-run organisations, thanks to the efforts and enterprise that Christine puts in, said Mr Shaw. We have a, a couple of articles on sport now, um, and this is a, a story about um, Worcester Warriors, I think. The headline is, Key Duo Back to Face the Irish. And there's a picture on the front of uh, Francois Hugard and Nick Schoenert. Tight head prop Nick Schoenert and scrum half Francois Hugard are expected to be in prime condition for the Worcester Warriors' crunch clash with London Irish. 
The duo suffered blows in Warriors' 18-14 home defeat to Sale Sharks in the Aviva Premiership last Friday, which sparked concerns over their fitness. Shonert had, or Shonert, sorry, had to be helped off the field while Hugard received treatment for a knee problem late on against Sale before completing the full 80 minutes. But head coach Carl Hogg has eased fears over their injuries, mm. insisting Hugard was fine and Shonert had sustained a classic back spasm. However, the pair are unlikely to feature in their back-to-back European Challenge Cup games against Oinax as Warriors look to get their stars prepared for the blockbuster encounter with relegation rivals Irish on Friday December the 22nd. We have picked up a few knocks but no significant injuries said Hogg whose side host Oinax on Saturday at three o'clock. That's the nature of a premiership as there is a physical contest every single weekend. It's probably the right time in the season with this European break to just freshen up some of the guys who have been in the front line. But on the other hand, it is an opportunity for young guys who are desperate to do well and put their hand up. Nick has a classic back spasm, so he is getting treated for it. We don't see it having a long-term potential impact on him, so we are grateful for that. It is something we can turn around in the next week or two. We have assessed some players who have picked up one or two bumps and bruises and we are looking to manage them. Francois is fine, so considering the three games we have come through to have reasonably clean bill of health is fantastic. Flanker Sam Lewis is also likely to miss Saturday's game after Director of Rugby Gary Gold confirmed the Welshman sustained a broken nose against Sale although the club have yet to confirm how long he would be out for. Hogg is also upbeat about getting Gerrit Jan van Velzer back, available for Warriors' battle with bottom club Irish. The former skipper and number eight was forced off with a rib injury in Worcester's 31-27 win at Leicester Tigers in late November, and his condition was reviewed last Thursday. GJ has got an injury to his ribs, Hogg added. He picked that up in the game, so it is going to take a bit of time. This gives him a window of opportunity to come out of the firing line and make sure he is rested and recovered properly. And now on to basketball. Worcester Wolves Managing Director Mick Donovan hopes the team can reward fans' loyalty with a BBL Cup Day out to remember after record-breaking attendances this season. Donovan pictured thanked fans for their continued loyalty as the University of Worcester-owned side prepared to face Sheffield Sharks for a place in the final at Birmingham's Barclay Barclay Card Arena. The average attendance at Wolves' home matches has risen from 871 in the 2014-15 season to 1,380 so far this campaign. We're very proud and appreciative of our loyal fans and we have seen record-breaking home attendances compared to previous seasons, he said. The fans have a good understanding of the game and regardless of results and performances, they continue to approach each match with a positive mindset and get behind the team. 
There is certainly a feeling of cup fever in the Worcester Wolves basketball camp this week. Everyone at the club would love to see Wolves make the prestigious final in Birmingham and the players in particular will be determined to reward the fans and club volunteers with a semi-final win that would bring a great cup final day out. I'm sure that if we were to make the final, there would be huge numbers making the short trip from Worcester to our neighbouring city. The first leg of the semi-final is at the University of Worcester Arena and the second will be in Sheffield on Wednesday, December the 20th. The winner will face either London Lions or Cheshire Phoenix on January 28th. Donovan acknowledged the team and their supporters have faced disappointment since the double winning season of 2013-14 when Wolves claimed both the BBL trophy and the BBL playoff final despite regularly finishing in the league's top four. But as the team have undergone personal changes each season, since then our supporters have remained faithful and vocal and have always welcomed new players for each campaign, said Donovan. Last season, Wolves made two semi-finals in the trophy and league playoffs, but just missed out on a place in the final despite winning the second legs after heavy defeats in the first. This included a dramatic semi-final playoff against Newcastle Eagles when the team dramatically pulled back a 19-point deficit only to narrowly lose in overtime. Despite having a different team from last year, it's vital we do not go as far behind after the first leg and the crowd will play a big part in keeping the players on track, said Donovan. Tickets are selling very quickly and we're expecting a full house once again for what should be a dramatic night of basketball. Donovan also welcomed the signing of Robert Gilchrist on a temporary contract last week. We have a very talented team this year but have been shorthanded in the forward position rotation and this was placing huge demands of Dalin Bakinski and Alex Navayas, he said. We could not afford to go through such an important December period with an understrength team. There is simply too much at stake. Robert not only brings much-needed support, but is an exciting player who also brings another dimension to our lineup. And now some football. Worcester City welcome back defender Mark Smith for Saturday's trip to AFC Wolfrunians, but Matt Burley is set to miss out. Smith, a Midland League title winner with Alvechurch last season, missed City's 4-1 drubbing of Derby rivals Starport Swifts through work commitments, but is now available for selection. Burley has been expected to join, but joint boss John Snape is unlikely to risk the ex-Birmingham City man who is nearing the end of his recovery from hamstring trouble. We are hopeful Matt will be ready for the midweek trip to Starport, but Saturday looks a bit too soon, said Snape. He has been in light training to keep him ticking over, and with three games in eight days, it is probably sensible to make sure he is spot on before putting him out there. Mark had a slight knee injury and knew he had to miss the Starport game anyway. He has a lot of experience and the whole squad will be needed in what is a very busy month for the team. Vibrations caused by workmen driving more than 50 piles into the ground meant two days of misery for neighbours in Worcester. 
but the company responsible says the work is finished now and it's offered to make good any damage the residents have suffered. Workman for developer Lance Scott, based in Bristol, were driving the foundations into the site on the corner of Coma Road and Lapal Close in St John's in order to support a new building. And the method they used, ramming the piles in, caused problems for residents living in a row of flats immediately behind the site in Lapal Close. One 90-year-old woman who did not wish to be named said her flat had been shaken so much some possessions had fallen to the ground. Her son said this made her very concerned and distressed, adding, I know that many other residents, mainly elderly, are very concerned too. He added, this site has had a history of some subsistence in the past and the residents had to pay a considerable sum of money to the freeholder to get it put right. We're all very concerned about this work impacting on the structure and foundations of these flats and their value. Another resident, Masiaj Kalinsky, 37, said, It's horrible. The whole house has been shaking. My computer's been shaking on the table. The walls have been shaking. It's noisy, but it's more the vibration. It shakes the whole house. Mr. Kalinsky added, it started about 9 a.m. and went on until 3 or 4 p.m. I worked nights and I couldn't sleep through it all. Even with earplugs in, it was terrible. A spokesman for Lancer Scott said that the work causing the vibrations had now finished. Will Hammer, a quantity surveyor for the company, said, because, of the soil, sorry, because the soil is so sandy, we had to use vibration piling so had to vibrate the soil, then pour in stone into the holes, then vibrate and piles into that. That was two days' work, but it's completed and there shouldn't be any more such noise and vibration. There will be normal construction noise from the site. Mr Hammer said that the Worcester News could give these details to neighbours who have been affected by the work and he'll be happy to discuss making good damage to their property. The foremost Christmas tree expert in the UK might just be grower Colin Palmer of Coddington near Ledbury and he has national awards to prove it. One of his key strategies which has grabbed the imagination of his industry is to encourage wild birds to eat pests rather than the grower having to resort to insecticides. Remarkably, he has used red tape to identify trees infested with aphids and it seems as if the birds are attracted to the trees with red tape and can rid a tree of aphids in one week flat at most. Mr Palmer, owner of Coddington Christmas Trees, was recently honoured with an award for outstanding service to the Christmas tree industry at the annual British Christmas Tree Growers Association Competition Day held near Wakefield. Mr Palmer described the award as a real feather in my cap. A spokesman added, Colin has been the technical lead for the UK Christmas tree industry for over a decade during which time he has developed strategies to improve tree quality through improved nutrition and refined methods of pest and weed control. He is particularly keen to foster a close partnership with nature by a better understanding of the way in which beneficial insects, aided by birds, can be encouraged to reduce damaging aphid populations. 
As part of this process, he developed the red tape solution for the control of the giant fir aphid without the need to use insecticides. As the name suggests, this aphid is very large and can produce large black colonies which look highly threatening. The spokesman said, Detailed field trials indicated to Colin that if the colonies were identified by tying red tape to infested trees, then on reinspection in five to seven days the colonies would have found to have been have disappeared and no further action was necessary, largely due to the voracious feeding of the aphid loving tits, linnets and gold crests. So a spraying operation was avoided to the benefit of the environment and the grower. But Mr Palmer's inventiveness does not stop there. The spokesman said, Another notable development was the ability to control cones in Fraser fir using an organic acid. The Fraser fir is quite finicky about the types of soils it likes, and if the ground dries in the, in the summer, then it is liable to react by producing hundreds of cones which have to be laboriously picked off by the grower, a truly mind-blowing task which has deterred most growers from growing this species. However, Colin noticed on his own plantation at Coddington that the cones were formed some three weeks before new foliage was produced in the spring, providing a window of opportunity to desiccate the tiny newly formed cones using an organic acid. The needles themselves were not affected. A spokesman said, The process was confirmed to be viable through field trials conducted in Herefordshire and Worcestershire. Fresh calls for action to improve the safety of a stretch of road near Droitwich have been made after two crashes in ten days. Police were called to reports of a three-car collision on the A38 in Martin Hussingtree near the crossroads with Copcut Lane and Pulley Lane on November 24th. A blue Toyota Ago, a white Citroen DS3 and a black Skoda Octavia were involved in the crash with ambulance crews also on the scene. This followed a crash on the same road between the junction with Copcut Lane and Pershaw Lane on November 14th. A spokeswoman for West Midlands Ambulance Service said one ambulance attended the latter incident and treated a woman in her 20s who had sustained (coughs) neck and back pain. She was given pain relief before being immobilised and taken to Worcestershire Royal Hospital for further checks, she said. The two crashes have once again raised questions about the potential levels of traffic on the road once the controversial U-Tree Hill development is completed. Matt Capewell wrote on Facebook, More traffic equals more accidents, but I suppose until there's a fatality, the council and developers will continue to ignore the issue. The scheme, which involves developers Persimmon, Barbary and Red Row, will feature 500 homes, a 200-bed care unit facility, a community centre, cafe and other facilities in the village-style estate. The new homes are being built on two sites, one on land at Pulley Lane, Newlands Road and Primsland Way, and the other on north of Pulley Lane and Newland Lane. 
The scheme has proved controversial from the beginning, with a public campaign to block it over infrastructure issues leading to the Council refusing the application in 2013 before it was overturned at appeal. Richard Morris, Worcestershire County Councillor representing Droitwich West, said highways are working with the developers on that junction and the widening of Pulley Lane. I'm fighting and pushing constantly, looking for solutions in terms of that crossroad and Pulley Lane. There are concerns about increases in traffic once the houses are all built, but there will be a significant in increase in the volume as the development increases. Of course, it's also a main artery if the M5 is closed, he added. People flocked to the 25th annual Worcester Victorian Christmas Fair in their thousands despite the bitter cold. About 150,000 people are thought to have visited over the four-day extravaganza, which saw 200 stores fill the historic streets of Worcester. Following the opening ceremony on Thursday, which saw the traditional procession of dignitaries from Worcester Cathedral to the Corn Market, as well as the Mayor of Worcester, Steve McKay's opening speech and the customary carousel ride, the city had awakened full of shopping and festivities. The event saw stallholders turning back the clock by dressing up in Victorian costume, as well as Victorian entertainers and fairground rides. The fair included street music, school and community singing groups, carol singers and well-known local um, local acts. Sarah Davis, who lives in Worcester, said, I think it is really good. There's lots to do and lots to see. We've been coming for the last few years and it gets, in, it gets you into the Christmas spirit. But Worcester resident Susan Hodgson said, There is better stores this year, but there are still too many food stores. We want more arts and crafts. Brandon Atkinson of Polyfields, based in Devon, said it has been really busy. It is a really nice event. Justin Bowen of Witchbold Fudge, based in Droitwich, said it is our first year, so it was difficult to prepare. We have a stall here on Wednesdays, so it was a lot busier than usual. It is a really nice atmosphere and we are happy to be part of it. Event organiser Helen Mole said, It is lovely to see so many people come out. Everyone has told me it has been a really fun event and they felt very safe. We have been able to squeeze in a few more stalls than last year and as we have been able to extend into Cathedral Square where the, where the main stage is, that has been better still. The Shambles has also been a proper part of this festival. We have always had gin lane there but this time we have had carol singers every day. This has helped to spread out the crowds more as people are visiting other parts of the city. She added that the turnout was the same as last year but organisers were pleased considering Brexit's impact on the economy and people's spending. The Victorian Fair is one of the most prestigious Christmas events in the Midlands, contributing an estimated £7 million to the local economy annually. Next year's fair will take place from November the 29th to December the 2nd. A prestigious private school is offering free places to local school children in what has been described as a Willy Wonka giveaway. Principal Malcolm Wood plans to introduce English pupils to Malvern's Abbey College, which is which currently comprised of solely international students. The school will now cover the day fees for three local children and offer 50% discounts to another 30 students. 
Mr. Wood, originally from Inkborough, Worcestershire, said, I arrived in September. I've come to Abbey College, where it's 100% overseas students. I decided I want to have some local students to join the mix. It's a bit like a Willy Wonka ticket. For students that come from overseas, it's good if they have British fellow students. We're looking for students who are fluent native speakers of English. Mr. Wood, age 42, hopes the introduction of local youngsters will lead to a cross-fertilisation of cultures at the school. The principal, who previously worked at an international school in Uganda, added that the fee places will be available in years 9, 10 and 12. The college is also (coughs) offering 10 half-free scholarships in each of these years to local pupils. Mr Wood added, It will be open to people who can feasibly get their children to school. That will be self-limiting. I envisage students within 15 miles. He said the school plans to interview candidates on December the 8th, December the 9th and December the 11th, with a successful applicant starting in September next year. The scholarships will apply for the duration of the time pupils study at the school and are not just limited to the school they join, sorry, to the year they join. Abbey College in Wells Road, Malvern, currently charges yearly fees of £28,000 for boarding students and 14000 for day pupils. To apply for one of the scholarships, email principal at abbeycollege.co.uk. One of Worcester's major roads and the access to Worcestershire County Cricket Club's ground will suffer 12 weeks of disruption to prevent future flooding of the road. But local councillors think that the cost outweighs the benefits. Councillors on County Hall's Planning and Regulatory Committee agreed to the raising of nearly 200 metres of new road in the city centre west of the Severn to prevent flooding. The road surface will be raised by up to 38 centimetres, nearly 15 inches, for a stretch of the three-lane one-way road running from just outside the Premier Inn Hotel, immediately west of Worcester Bridge, to 20 metres west of the cricket ground, a distance of 190 metres. A box culvert will be constructed under the road surface to carry away flood water. Work will start in January and will continue for an anticipated 12 weeks and is, according to the application to the committee, time to avoid the cricket season. During the nearly three months period, at least one lane of the road will be open and access will be maintained to the cricket ground, Cripplegate Park and the King's School Worcester's playing fields although intermittent closures will may be, may be required. The county's highways department says the work is necessary because New Road is a key arterial route through Worcester and has a history of flooding events. The application cited closures of the road due to flooding for four days in 2007 and eight days in 2014 and that this work would keep the road open during floods of similar severity. The county said the traffic-based economic benefits of the scheme would amount to £7.497 million, while the wider economic benefits would amount to £2.892 million. But while the committee approved the scheme, both members who represent Worcester areas... 
Councillor Pat Agar, Labour and Cooperative Nunnery, and Paul Denham, Labour and Cooperative Rainbow Hill, voted against the plan. Councillor Denham said, We were not convinced by the economic arguments. The road has been closed by flooding for 12 days over the last 10, nearly 11 years. The disruption of 12 weeks' work on the road would seem to outweigh the disruption of 12 days every 11 years and it doesn't look like anybody's looked at the economic impact on the city of the disruption caused by the work. Councillor Denham is also very concerned by the necessity to chop down seven mature trees along the road to allow the work to happen. He said the trees form an avenue along the road and according to the City Council's Conservation Areas Advisory Committee, they date back to 1920. The proposals say that 13 trees will be replanted but inside Cripplegate Park and not along the road. Councillor Denham said both the Advisory Committee and the County Ecologists say that won't properly replace that won't properly replace the trees and want new trees planted in the same place as the ones to be removed, but that's not going to happen. Work on the scheme is due to start in January. A teacher who was well known in Malvern has died at eighty seven. Patricia Kaspari taught English at the Chase Secondary Modern School and then became head of English at Ellerslie School. She was appointed deputy head at Hereford Sixth Form College and then headmistress of Haberdasher's ASCII School for Girls in Monmouth. After retirement, she became an Ofsted inspector. She spent the last few years of her life in Malvern Retirement Home, Davenham, and she was widowed twice in 1997 and 2001 and leaves behind two sons, Alex and Roger, and two daughters, Magda and Karen, from her first marriage and eight grandchildren. There will be a requiem mass at 11 o'clock on Friday, December 15th at St George's Catholic Church, Worcester, followed by a private cremation. A popular Christmas tree festival is set to return to the city for its seventh year. Visitors to Worcester Cathedral can enjoy the spectacular festival of Christmas trees with trees beautifully bedecked with tinsel, baubles and lights and due to lie on all four sides of the cathedral's medieval cloister. The 91 trees are provided and decorated by local schools and businesses and charities and visitors will be able to vote for their favourite in a People's Choice Award. The festival welcomes thousands of visitors each year and in turn raises thousands of pounds for charity through generous donations. This year the festival is being jointly organised by Daisy Chain Benevolent Fund which helps sick children and young people and Worcester Cathedral. The Mayor of Worcester will be officially opening the festival which runs from 9am to 6pm on Saturday December the 9th to Thursday January the 4th. All are welcome. The start of Advent and Christmas will also be celebrated at Worcester Cathedral with a candlelit Advent carol service at 6.30pm on Sunday December the 3rd, which is obviously gone now. All are welcome to attend what promises to be an atmospheric start to the festive season. A public open day marked the end of a two-week archaeological dig that unearthed a 2,000-year-old Roman farmstead in the Warnden area of Worcester. 
Worcester City Council's archaeological team, alongside more than 30 volunteers, excavated at Mab's Orchard in Trots Hill, Warnden Villages. Excavations revealed the site was a busy farmstead dating back at least 1,800 years to the 2 AD. Roman pottery finds included mixing bowls, tankards, fine tableware, as well as a Roman building brick, animal bone and a sheep's tooth. More than 50 people turned out on Saturday to see some of the finds, and Becky Jones of Barris Avenue was among them. She said, It's interesting that people were living here before us. The Roman people have lived here. They obviously had a bit of money. I was surprised by how nice the pottery was. James Din, archaeological officer at the city council, said, We have had a steady trickle of people throughout the day. We've been showing them around the site, offering information and talking to them about the settlement. Archaeologists believe an area near the farmstead within the same field as where the buildings were likely to have been, but at this time they are unable to excavate that site. Sheen and Payne Lunn, historical environment record officer at the council, said, We know know Roman people were here, living and eating. Earlier a young lad found a sheep's tooth. Some of the pottery was thought to have been made in Malvern. One piece even had the marker's imprint. The first signs of the Roman farmstead were discovered in 2006 when a team of archaeologists carried out a test dig at the site and found ditches containing pottery. The land is being excavated now because the neighbouring Warnden Village's allotments are set to be expanded. The dig was made possible by a grant of £10,000 from the Heritage Lottery Fund money from the City Council and Councillor Andy Roberts's council, County Council's Divisional Fund. There aren't many senior citizens more senior in the UK than Gwen Tilbrook of Eastnor, who celebrated her 108th birthday last week. According to the Oldest in Britain online list, which does its best to be comprehensive, Miss Tilbrook is currently the 94th oldest person in the UK and she is one of just 170 people in the country aged 107 and over. Miss Tilbrook was born on November 22, 1909, when advances such as powered flight had only just recently been achieved. The Titanic was yet to set sail. She marked her remarkable birthday last week with a party at Bircham's Grange Residential Care Home in Eastnor, where she has been a resident since 2003. Emma Cuker, director at Bircham's Grange, said, We had a big party for Gwen, and she also received another card from the Queen. She hasn't really got any family, but close friends attended. Miss Tilbrook attended a private ladies' college during the late 1920s, and later she moved to Small Farm at Castle Morton, where she helped her mother with running the farm during the late 1930s. Miss Tilbrook later moved to Bank Crescent in Ledbury, where she owned and ran a bed and breakfast business until she retired in the late 1970s. She didn't move out of Ledbury, however. Before moving to Bircham's Grange, she lived in Bidolf Way. Longevity seems to be a feature of her family. Miss Tilbrook had a younger sister called Lily, who lived to be a hundred and one month. 
She was also a resident at Bircham's Grange. More than 50 fair dodgers were caught out by a sting at Fourgate Street Station yesterday morning, with one train user referring to the operation as modern-day fascism. Around 10 revenue, protection and security officers were camped at the city centre station from 7.30am until noon, with the operation a combined effort between London Midland and Great Western Railway. Francis Thomas, London Midland's Head of Corporate Affairs, who was present at the sting, said, There's always a bigger concentration of fare dodgers around the peak times and in the centres. Most customers are straight down the line. When we speak to them, they tell us one of their biggest bugbears is people who dodge fares. We are working for that 97%. It is everybody's responsibility to buy a ticket before they travel. We want to get the message across. Every customer passing through the station was checked and anybody caught without a ticket faced a penalty fine amounting to either double the fare or £20, whichever was the higher. During the peak time, up to 9.30am, 51 passengers were stopped who did not have a ticket. All but one were fined, while another was recommended for prosecution. Officers used their discretion when dealing with commuters without a ticket. For example, if the ticket office was closed or a machine was out of order at the station from which the commuter travelled, the officer could choose not to issue a fine. If there's a question mark, they'll get a penalty fine, said Mr Thomas. If they're deliberately trying to evade, they can go straight to prosecution. The train user recommended for prosecution began filming his conversation with Lead Revenue Protection Manager Neil Barnard after being caught without a ticket, telling him it would go on YouTube. He was filming the whole time, said Mr Barnard. Some individuals feel it's a good feel, it's a good way of intimidating us. We can cope with that. He went on to say, you have to be patient in this job. It's very easy to let the red mist come down if you do lose it. All the rules are working for us. All the good is on our side. We are in the right. You just have to keep calm. Mr Barnett said that if the prosecution goes ahead, he could face a fine of 300 to £400 pounds because he was not cooperating. Mr. Thomas added, you're on YouTube, you're on YouTube, fine, it helps to get the message across. Dave Short, Revenue Protection Inspector, said, people are are creatures of habit. You often catch the same people as well. The one I just had was a regular offender. (laughs) They know they can get away with it. Nine times out of ten, they'll get away with it. He's someone who has very little money, but he still chooses to travel. He said, I've been spat at and punched. You take it on the chin, it's part of the job. According to London Midland spokesman, the rail industry loses over £200 million per year to ticketless travel. That is enough to pay for 10 new stations the size of Bromsgrove or 133 extra railway carriages. 
A pensioner is calling on Worcestershire County Council to install clearer signs on a road in Rushwick, which is due to partly close to prevent buses bypassing the village, as happened before during similar roadworks. The council has issued a temporary closure of part of Bransford Road from today, this was on Monday, for 14 days to allow for drainage work. This means the closure of Bransford Road from its junction with Bransford to its turn-off with Grove Way and the official suspension of the 417 service into Worcester. However, Robin Young, 80, believes clearer signs need to be put in place at the top of Bransford Road to prevent 308 and 420 bus drivers from mistakenly thinking the village is shut. These two buses use stops on Claphill Lane, which can still be accessed despite the works, according to Mr Young. <clears throat> this is the second time in two months we are going to lose part of our through road at Rushwick due to work, said Mr Young, who, like many other villagers, uses the buses into Worcester every day. That's OK insofar as it's the main road through the village and there's only one bus, the 417, that cannot continue as normal. But he said the last time the road was closed, suddenly we found 420 and 308 drivers were stopping outside the village instead of coming through. Signs said the village was signs said the village was shut, but it was only one section, not the whole village. It's repeating itself. Mr. Young, who has lived in Claphill Lane for 11 years, said he is willing to show representatives from the council firsthand that clearer signs would solve the problem. They are refusing my invitation of a visit to the site because it is so obvious that I am right and they are wrong, said Mr Young. He said many of the bus users are elderly, with one 85-year-old woman forced to walk three quarters of a mile home rather than a few yards. I am after putting pressure on them to inform the bus companies and ensure drivers are aware, he added. Councillor Alan Amos, County Council Cabinet Member for Highways, said... Whilst it is important to make the people of Rushwick aware that the 417 bus service will not be able to access the village from December the 4th until December the 18th due to road closures, it is also important to confirm that the 308 and 420 services will not be affected, meaning access to Worcester City Centre by bus will still be available. We can also confirm, despite public concerns, service stopping at Claphill Lane will not be affected. And that nearly brings us to the end of tonight's mm. read. Um, just let you know that the lighting up times is 7.58 to 8.03. Um, we wish a very happy birthday to Deborah Fryer on December the 14th. Um, hope you have a great day. And if there's anybody out there who also has a birthday this coming week, please let us know so that we can um, put it in our diaries for next year. Um, thanks to David Harper for your donation, much appreciated. Um, emergency phone numbers for out-of-hours medical assistance from 6pm to 8am is 0300123 and the NH number for non-emergency help is 111. Malvern Theatre telephone number 01684 894 Worcester Live 611429 uh, covers the Swan and Huntington Hall. Worcester Hub number for Council Matters is 765765 or 722233. Crime Stoppers 
telephone number 08005551111. Our telephone number is 01905767766. Our address is 11 Wiles Lane, Worcester, WR5 1DA. Our website address is um, www.worcestertalkingnews.org.uk on which you can find all the recordings for the weekly news and monthly magazines and much more. We value your feedback, likes and dislikes or changes you may like to make. Please just uh, put a note into your envelopes and we can um, see what, what we can do to change things. Um, We wish you all a very happy Christmas and look forward to being able to read the news again in the new year from all of us. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.